Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus. It's Brendan here with Mark again, episode 102, 102, Friday the 27th of September 2019. And Mark, with our excitement of announcing our prizes for our 100th episode, we have forgot to give our details over the last couple of episodes. So we'll quickly run through that. And it's easy, vetgurus.com. Just go there, you'll find Everything you'd ever need, vetgurus.com, including our email address, which is vetgurus at gmail.com. That's pretty easy as well. And at vetgurus.com, you can link to patreon.com where you can throw us a bone and give us a couple of dollars to help support us, um, which would be fantastic. So, Mark, what have you been up to? I want to chat a little bit about a sporting topic or a finals topic that's been happening lately, Mark, but how's your week been? I've had a good week, Brendan. It's been an excellent start to the week and the week just seems to be getting better and better. We've had some, well, I don't know, complicated cases but um, and and um, some that have been a little bit worrying, but um, everything's going okay. Everything's okay. We've had... We've had a couple of, well, one, but it, I look back on our records. We had an interesting neoplasm, a tumour that Belinda saw on a bearded dragon, the base of the tail mark, pretty close to the cloacal region or cloacal region. And I went in there and I debrided it as best I could, but it was very diffuse and very hard to get out all of it. And I'm certain I didn't get out all of it. And it came back as an anaplastic sarcoma, a very high rate of mitosis and pretty nasty stuff. And it was seen at the revisit one or two weeks later, which was last week. And it was already regrowing at that stage. And we ended up and opening up the wound as well. So we ended up having to euthanize the animal. And interestingly enough, the same week I saw for an unrelated problem, a completely unrelated bearded dragon that I'd taken off a mass off a tail about three or four years ago. And it and I looked up the histology results and it was exactly the same thing an anaplastic sarcoma mark but this one I must have been lucky enough to manage to remove the whole thing um so have you seen anything like that in a bit of dragons or yes reptiles? definitely the the um it'd be interesting for us to put together a bit of a series because uh, anaplastic sarcomas do seem to occur um, more frequently in in my experience in bearded dragons um, we've had a couple of times where we've we thought it may have been some sort of granulomatous lump we've opened it up and it hasn't looked the normal sort of you know caseous come um, uh, fibrotic mass um, and um, and they've come back with that diagnosis we had a tumor in, it's a sad story because I scoped an eclectus parrot and uh, we could see radiographically it had a um, mass in it in in there its kidneys or gonads and um, and I scoped it and I must have um, been well the mass was fragile and um, bled and and uh, I wasn't able to recover the bird so cancers have been giving me a bit of a bad week Brendan yeah it's 
not much fun when you get those sort of ones, and especially when you have the dedicated owners that are willing to spend the time and and effort in trying to treat them and they realise that it might be a difficult case and they we end up with a dead dead patient and they spend lots of money and yeah it's a sad thing all around clients and they let us work it up just exactly how it should have been worked up and uh and um and despite doing all the right things sometimes that's not enough to save them yes yes I wish we could save them all, Mark. I'm gonna. I'm trying to find, think of a segue um, to my next to the other topic I wanted to chat about, but I don't have just anything. Sport. No, just I jump to onto it. The Australian rules of football, Mark, and the finals. I'm thoroughly enjoying the finals series here. And for our overseas listeners, um, you probably don't know much about Australian rules of football. Um, you can jump online and and look up some of the highlights of our fantastic game. And it is the finals series and our grand final, which is the last last game of the season. And the winner is uh, ends up being the the top of the ladder and the champion team um, is this weekend, Mark. And as you know, um, about three years ago, Victoria, the state I live in, declared a public holiday the Friday before the the actual event. So we now have, and I think it might be the only place in the world where we have two public holidays for sporting (laughs) events, don't we, Mark? We have the Australian Rules Football Grand Final Friday, even though the actual event's on the Saturday. And we also have the the racing event, the Melbourne Cup uh, as well, which is the first Tuesday. Yes, so um, I'm looking forward to a long weekend <laughs> um, and I've managed to, to wrangle things. So um, Belinda is working this Saturday, so I have a, a three-day weekend, um, although she did spend a, a week off at a conference on the Gold Coast, Mark. Um, came back very sunburnt, I think, um, so I don't know what the conference was about. But, yeah, the... Um, I'm looking forward to the, this final, Mark. Even though my team didn't even make the finals this year, St Kilda, um, I haven't given up hope, Mark. My my hope is that they will win the grand final. They will win the championship in my lifetime um, because the unfortunate thing about St Kilda is it's one of the oldest foot, Australian rules football teams um, and yet it has only ever won one final, one championships. Championship and that was back in 1963. Oh, sorry, 1966, I should say. Yeah, um, yes. So I'm just hoping that they win one more before I die, and I'm not too um, out of it um, when they do win it that I do realise that they have won one. But I'm, no. I'm really enjoying the finals. My 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 tip is don't count on it. Oh. Um, but you should really enjoying them because there's it's a bit of an interstate rivalry that's developed and um and your state uh victoria who um you know have have uh, dominated australian rules football for so long um they they're they're um they're really like not hang you know they're they're while they're still the focus there are other strongholds around the country and uh the greater western sydney side while no doubt being the massive underdogs. Um, they've been the massive underdogs for the last four weeks and won each of those games. So anything can happen in the final. Yes, it will be an interesting final. I and mean, I'm just glad the team that everybody loves to hate, except the supporters who support them, which is Collingwood, is not <laughs> in the final. And that's the most important thing. So I'll have a bit of a relaxing day and watch the final. I'm not too fussed about whether yeah, GWS, Greater Western Sydney or, or, or Richmond win, although Richmond is the team that my 
my wife's family mainly support. Um, so, yeah, there you go. So I think I've bored everybody with my Australian rules football. Um, little chat here, Mark. I, don't, I, I think it's... I think just before we move on from it, though, people need to, one of the things that I think, you know, we do talk a lot about our animals and veterinary issues and, um, but they do have to, people have around the world, I think, need to understand that um, Australian rules football very nearly approaches religious um, stature in, particularly in Victoria, where they have a holiday to watch the uh, parade on the Friday and the city virtually comes to a standstill, and um, and unless they get one hundred and twenty thousand people to the game, um, they consider it an abject failure. It is. It is a very uh, a, a fundamental part of a Victorian's life. I yes, think, and I think one of the statistics that I saw fairly recently was that this particular code of game has the highest percentage of, of followers per population of any any game in the world, which includes soccer slash football, cricket, um, baseball, you know, American football, etc. And it, it was by a fair margin. So, yeah, we are a little bit sport crazy here in Victoria, but certainly in Australia generally. And, yeah, if during a normal home and away match there is less than, you know, 30,000 or so at most of these games, it's considered a bit of a failure um, for a normal match. And, and a lot of countries and cities where they have populations that far exceed ours, Mark, um, that that um, they'd be happy to get twenty or 30,000 to a game. So, yeah, it is avidly followed, Mark, and, um, yeah, we have a holiday this Friday. So so I'll be sitting at home, Mark, um, probably sleeping in a little bit, maybe doing a little bit of work, um, maybe doing a bit of photography or woodwork and um, gearing up for the game for the next day. I've got to pace myself, Mark. Um, I, w- I won't peak too early and... and um, I won't um, take any take too much alcohol too early on the Friday in case we have problems. Um, in fact, what I'm planning to do on the Friday, now that I mention it, is go and visit my mother because we haven't seen my mum for a fair few months. So I'll go and visit her. She lives on her own, as you know, um, since Dad died a few years ago. And, um, yeah, um, I just heard this week, we didn't chat about this off air, that um, she's had a bit of a sore foot that they worked out, had a bit of a cyst on it, Mark, um, and she was trying an anti-inflammatory cream on it prescribed by her doctor and um, it wasn't doing much. So she told me last night she's booked in for surgery. So she's booked in to have a cyst removed from, I think it's on the dorsal aspect, the top of her foot um, near one of her, near a big toe or something um, that's causing her a fair bit of pain. Um, Friday week, um, so we're heading down on Friday on the public holiday here to to go and see her for lunch. And yeah, I'll be I'll be glad when the surgery's over and all's good because yeah, she's not. A spring chicken anymore, Mum. I think she's 80, 88 or eighty nine. So yeah, I always get very nervous when, well, when any any family or, or close friend is having surgery, but especially so when they're getting on in years, Mark. So yeah, I'll um, I'll rest easy when she gets through that surgery. We'll all be um, thinking of you and your mum, and we'll look forward to you giving us a bit of a report to let us know everything's okay. I will do that. And and with that, I'm jumping into Wombat Poo, Mark. You're um, straight into the Wombat Poo. Straight into my first story, and I absolutely love this story. And this 
story is it should be it should be highlighted this story because it is one of the win- winners of the Ig Nobel Prize, which is sort of the alternative or fun um, alternative to the Nobel Prize, where they give out prizes to quirky or interesting true scientific research projects and this one was about a study where researchers have finally discovered why wombats feces are cube shaped and for those of you who have not experienced wombat poo and we certainly have lots of wombats locally here mark um i expect that you'd have them up your way as well we do indeed. Um, we have that those square or those cube shaped feces mark and there's been lots of thoughts um for many years about um, why they form these cubed feces. And, gee, there was lots of ideas, wasn't there, that they had a bit of a, a sort of square-shaped anus, Mark. It was the classic one that people used to think about um, and that their pubic bones would squeeze their feces into square packages, um, that they had this square-shaped sphincter. Um, gee, that would be interesting, wouldn't, wouldn't it? And the other one that the researchers, when they were thinking about studying this particular topic, um, that, and this was the researchers' favourite um, um, concept that people thought was how they formed these, um, that wombats would defecate and then pat the feces into a square shape mark that was one of the original thoughts about how they would do it why they would do that who knows maybe they have more time on their hands than we have mark um is what they were thinking but they finally worked out what it is um that they because they yeah they just believed i mean the bottom line is that they believed initially that it was just the cubes were or the feces were formed at the point of exit but they've discovered that, and, and it, this is that um, it was awarded the Ig Nobel Prize, the international award that makes people both laugh and think, that they found that the cubed feces actually goes back about a metre inside their intestines from their anus. Um, so they've discovered the various muscle variations around the circumference of the wombat's colon, Mark, is where it is is started um, the process and that cubed shaped feces is formed a lot further back than they thought originally so i think it's a very gee i tell you what i'd i'd i would retire if i managed to um do a study like that and um i'd be very very proud to um to um, accept the Ig Nobel Prize for that. So that's my first news story, Mark, um, the discovery about the true cause of how wombats form their cubed-shaped faeces. So so the other thing that's interesting about that, Brendan, um, and I, I, it is amazing that that uh, they form way up there in the, the, uh, the um, colon, colon and they end up, because of the shape of the muscles there in that shape and it's slow process and because it's grass. But um, they don't roll as a consequence and the wombats put them on the top of things. Um, so I wonder whether um, that arrangement of muscles in the colon um, was favoured, you know, like if they're using square uh, cuboid stools to mark territory... And I was the the um, the wombat that didn't have those particular muscles, and I laid my territory marking <laughs> stools on the top of a a uh, you know particularly outstanding piece of um, local uh, landscape 
but then everything rolled down in the river and washed away, I wouldn't uh, maintain my territory. Do you think there's a possibility that that territoriality, the role that the cuboid stool plays, because you always find them on the top of rocks or logs or, you know, Yes. Do you think that that could have been the middle of a path when you're walking? <laughs> well, what came first, Mark? The the, the the cube or the thought of wanting to lay the cube? I mean, that's the we we that's tackle those fundamental yes. philosophical <laughs> questions here on the Vet Gurus podcast. And my my topic similarly hits at the heart of um, well. It's not nearly as um, pertinent as yours, but I found it interesting. It's um. It talks about, um, and and I've been particular. I've, you know that I um, am a. Um, uh, I'm constantly upset about our inaction on climate change, and and for many reasons, I think life will be very different over the coming decades. And I worry about um, my sons and your daughters and their families and what they'll have to deal with as a consequence of our inaction. Um, but um, this particular study. Uh, um, published in Trends in Parasitology um, by some Australian researchers, particularly Dr Nicholas Clark from UQ. Um, They identified that um, different... that changes in temperature are very much likely um, to lead to changes in human-to-animal interactions... Um, and as a consequence, directly result in changes in uh, the um, um, spread of zoonotic disease, um, uh, the way that uh, those diseases, which can be transferred from uh, animals to new host species, particularly humans, um, that these diseases are likely um, to change their... um, What's the right word? The pattern of... um, of, uh, you know, the way that they're likely to spread between normal hosts and then the possibility that they can spread to new hosts. And we have seen over the last um, few decades an increase in the particularly serious, um, notorious infections like bird flu and Ebola and uh, Hendra, for example. Um, and these diseases... Um, uh, um, uh, examples of how things are likely to progress in the future, according to um, uh, Nicholas Clark and his colleague Constance Wells from Swansea University. Um, so I think as well as just temperature, um, uh, changing weather pattern, more extreme weather patterns with uh, violent events, the fact that we might have um, uh, outbreaks of diseases, I mean, it's a horrible future we're looking forward to, Brendan. That's depressing, Mark. Um, why do you always give me the depressing stories? Uh, well, actually, I selected it for you, didn't I? So sorry about that. <laughs> yes. Um, next news story is a little bit more upbeat. It's about chameleons' colours and their amazing and beautiful colours and how how it happens, how it occurs, how that process um, develops, Mark, because originally people thought it was just a change in pigment colours around um, underneath or in the skin that was causing chameleons for their obvious ability to change colour. But they've 
Researchers have discovered that it's due to millions of microscopic salt crystals just under the skin there. And these photonic crystals have a have a particular change where they can change all their all their hues. And reading through this article, Mark, I don't know whether you can um, read forward or, or through it, Mark, and tell me whether or not how this process works because I couldn't quite get the gist of how the crystals change i presume that there's some chemical reaction that's happening there where where they can then change their their color by changing the percentage of particular types of these salt crystals because most of the article does then take this thought and talks about scientists in the field of photonic crystals have been working for a long time to create color changing smart skins for a range of potential applications such as camouflage and anti-counterfeiting tags and chemical sensing and they're in the first stages of doing this but they're a, a doctoral student is trying to improve on previous attempts to create smart skin in the laboratory where, where they've created a hydrogel with two layers which is how the chameleon skin is structured which is what they were basing it on and the structure gave them the flexibility they needed to create strain accommodating smart skin which changes color but maintains a near constant size but what i was hoping to find out is yeah they've worked out that these particular um salt crystals are the way that chameleons can manage to change their colors but how does that process work how does the the um, change in the salt crystals and then cause the change in the colours. And I presume there's some sort of chemical reaction that the chameleon's setting off when they're sensing that they need to change their colour in their environment and um, away they go and the crystals do their thing, Mark. Um, do, you, do you think that's how it's going to work? No, I, I don't think it is. <laughs> I'm going dis- oh, I think, no. I, I think that they um, – they, uh, it doesn't say in your article, so I'm just completely. You think it's just the way it, it, it the way it um, just reacts to light. I think it, I think it is. It's an orientation and immersion thing. So the crystals will be in certain, um, you know, body fluids within certain um, uh, cells, and there'll be layers of chemicals above and below them, and the angle at which those uh, um, crystals sit. And the amount of um, light that's refracted by the stuff above and below um, will will determine the colour. That's what I reckon. So, well, I think you're probably damn right there, Mark. Um, but my only my only comment there would be: How and why does a chameleon change its colour when it's stressed? Well, I reckon it because the the same thing happens. Bearded dragons change their colour when they're stressed, and not to the same, you know, with the same um, extreme palette that our chameleons use. But um, but certainly, it's a very common thing for us to see our bearded dragons, particularly what maybe wild ones that have been clipped by a car and are, are, are very very ill, or um, ones that have been in captivity and may not have had good care for a long time, and so they're terminally ill. They get that. Um, very very dark black pigment all over their belly and um, and uh, if you put one at just this time of year if you whack one of those uh, um, uh, um, waking up females in the vicinity of a male they they you know they do have some behavioural changes their head bulbs and whatnot but their beard changes colour pretty pretty rapidly um, so so I'm sure that I don't know you know whether it's a 
humoral thing, whether it's a, a, um, a neurotransmitter. I don't know the answer to that. but um, it'll Or be a vascular. Yeah. Yes, of course. Um, so I think, um, yeah, there you go. We've got some more homework to do, Brendan. I haven't even finished my homework from last time. Cramps. <laughs> Cramps. <laughs> yes, that's right. You still haven't got to me about cramps and um, how to avoid them, apart from not exercising um, or perhaps exercising more. So what's your last news story, Mark, before we jump into rabbit uh, part last, two? My last news story is about tardy grades. I don't know any better way to segue than just announce what it's about. Um, they have, they are, um, well, microscopic. They're, they're very small animals that tend to live in boggy, mossy places. And they uh, have, um, have, have cool common names or nicknames. Um, they often get referred to as water bears. Um, uh, they've got um, uh, six pairs of legs, I think, and, and but they walk along. Um, their rough shape does make them look a little bit pandery sort of looking, so I understand that name. And moss piglet. Um, they do sort of have a little bit of more porcine characteristic, I think, and and uh, because they do definitely live in wet, mossy environments, that, that uh, common name fits nicely. Um, they're only about a millimetre, maybe a millimetre and a half when fully grown, um, but their real claim to fame, Brendan, is that they're, well, they're pretty much, as far as anything, well, they're nearly indestructible. As some, for something that is technically alive, they come very, very close to uh, to being the most resilient form of life on Earth. They, we know that they can survive extreme temperatures. Um, they've been known to shrug off extreme doses of radiation um, and uh, I don't know that I can actually say they laugh, but um, they definitely have survived uh, in a sort of suspended animation state in the vacuum of space itself. Um, so I think, um, yeah, because there's one known experiment where they were um, exposed to um, the, the uh, vacuum of space for 10 days, um, and when that satellite returned to Earth... Um, it was discovered that not only had the tardigrades in the uh, space vessel survived, but they'd bred. There were some new baby ones. So they sort of are <laughs> pretty bloody tough. But the, the, the newest, um, I don't know, I, this is a bit that worries me. You know, scientists sometimes get caught up in their um, in their little world, without necessarily understanding all the consequences of their action, I think that can be said of our good friends in Israel, who lumped a few um, tardigrades onto a Israeli Bereshit probe, which uh, was um, sent to the moon to do some uh, simple experiments, but crashed in uh, two thousand earlier this year, two thousand and nineteen. Um, and the the uh, the people from um, Israel who ran that uh, um, that mission, uh, particularly the founder of the organisation, uh, suggested that maybe the only thing that um, that uh, survived from that whole uh, space vessel were the tardigrades. Which I don't know. I, I'm I'm a little bit worried, Brendan, that. Mm. The thing that worries me, Mark, is what the Japanese researchers did um, in this article. 
and they were they experimented with the tardigrades to see what radiation doses they could could survive from or under or be absorbed to and humans barely survive a dose of around about five grays and they found that the water bears could survive radiation doses of five to six thousand grays and then they then from that they they realized that the animal's coping strategies included a protein that protects its dna from radiation damage which they labeled mark and i love this dsup short for damage (laughs) suppressor and this is the bit that i found found a little bit a little bit disturbing they transplanted the dsup protein into human cells in the lab and it protected those cells as well um so the concern there is for me is that gee are we going to be all dsup in the future so when you um you know we, we might be a bit tougher there mark but you know and, and maybe when <laughs> maybe when you go and um say hello to people you say instead of saying what's up you say dsup to people um if you have that particular protein in there but it's a concern so you know um i don't think we should have the dsup protein um, injected into us mark even that would make us toughen up their mark so yeah i I think sometimes they they get a little bit narrow-minded with um the thoughts of you know what can we do with this particular study or or process mark as you were saying and um maybe they're going a little bit too far or maybe not far enough mark Um, maybe we all need to toughen up and become desup what do you think don't want to be on that um, that Apollo mission that lands on the moon with radiation exposed D sub tardigrades <laughs> that are about the size of hippopotamus. Uh, but if you've got the D sub protein in you, Mark, you'll be fine. You will be fine. Yes, um, yes. No tardigrades are pretty amazing. Pretty amazing, and I can see your fascination with them. Um, I expect you'd probably have a poster of a D, uh, not a D-sup, a tardigrade somewhere in your in your house or your clinic. Um, if I if I came over there, there, Mark. Yes. So there we go. So well, gee, they were four slightly um, unrelated stories there, Mark. Um, but that's what it is. Um, we we pick out the best of the best, don't we, um, of the stories from one back poo to tardigrades and um, everything in between so i think with that we've got no time left to talk about part two of our bunny consult but um, we better jump into it so last week for those of you who didn't um, listen to last week's episode um, we went through the process of what do we do with a bunny consultation? So this is a client who brings in a rabbit that they have just purchased perhaps um, or their first bunny um, and we went through booking the consultation, the general clearing uh, care of enclosure and cleaning, um, getting a friend um, and some other aspects. So we wanted to conclude with the other important factors that we'd consider when you're looking over a bunny in that first consultation, Mark. And I think the, the next one we need to chat to the client about is that the big chestnut, Mark, the big one there, and that's the diet. What's your what's your summary? Do you, and, and obviously, and we spoke about this last week, that you would be giving them a diet sheet to go home with, but um, what's your two-minute or five-minute, or does it take you ten minutes to go through the diet summary well, it doesn't take that long, Brendan. I... I my my summary is essentially um, to feed them grass, to feed them as, you know, grass hay or f- um, allow them to graze grass. We know that um, that if their diet is, 
is a, they've evolved to eat grass. They're grazers. They eat a few herbs and um, and uh, uh, um, other small plants, but predominantly they're an organism that's evolved to eat grass. And the more that we can get them to eat um, that uh, wild diet that they've evolved to eat, um, the generally healthier they'll be and the longer they'll live. Um, of course. I do spend a lot of time talking about diet in the consult with my uh, new rabbit clients, but it's mainly um, what not to feed them because the bloody things people buy from the pet store and the supermarket, the the infamous um, muesli mixes with seeds and molasses and... um, and, uh, pellets of unknown origin of just last week i was spreading one out on the table and doing my usual oh my god will you look at what's in this and there were three different sorts of you know in addition to various breakfast cereal crunchy bits um there were there were pellets i couldn't even tell <laughs> where they'd come from so so i do spend an awful lot of time telling people what not to feed their rabbits um uh, um, rabbits do tend to, I don't know, they pull those emotional um, heartstrings and people do feel, despite my um, my, my uh, earnest imploring, they, um, they still find it necessary to give them treats or um, offer them a little bit of stuff that they, uh, they that I inform them is completely bad. But um, if I can get them to eat largely grass, Brendan, I'm a happy man. And we did mention last episode about asking the client when they phone up about bringing the patient, bringing that rabbit to the clinic, put some food in the enclosure with it. And that's where you pull out the rabbit, as you just mentioned there, and you often see some pretty horrible um, foods. Um, And when they fill out that diet sheet, it's amazing how many of them will say, we feed it a complete rabbit food is their comment about what you feed them and yeah, what a complete rabbit food is. means different thing to different people, doesn't it? Um, yeah, so the hay and veggies or the grass and veggies diet is, is basically what I suggest as as you do there, Mark. Um, and I, I, I mean, one way I try and get, get the point through to clients if we're struggling to do that is to say, look, what do rabbits eat out there in the wild? And even in countries, for example, like Australia here, where they're a non-native animal, they thrive, Mark, don't they? Even in even in drought conditions and, and drought regions of Australia, they are doing well. They're breeding like rabbits. They're, they're running around and, and having a great time. And there's no fresh grass there and they're eating plant material by digging under the soil there in between rocks um, underground um, sort of roots etc and they manage to cope and breed and survive where a lot of other animals don't so they're eating incredibly high fiber content food um, and they're doing well and yeah what do we tend to do we go out to the supermarket we buy the rabbit treats which are yeah, muesli bars or seed bars that's stuck together often with with just a bit of sugar. Um, so no no wonder we end up with a lot of a lot of rabbits with illnesses, Mark, and dental disease and all the other diseases that we commonly see. You know, it's good for business, but not great great for the rabbits. So yeah, we do spend a fair percentage of our time of the consultation expressing our thoughts about the importance of diet um, and diet and disease and and trying to keep it simple because here I think the more complex you 
make things uh, more difficult it is for clients to remember it, number one, and, and two, they're not going to follow a really complex um, feeding regime. And the good news is it doesn't have to be, does it, for rabbits? Um, so, yes, diet. The other thing I find about that, the other thing I find about that diet discussion is that um, is the question of motivation um, that uh, that both you and I know that if rabbits get those ridiculous diets, they're much, much more prone to a whole range of diseases. And if you can be very specific about explaining those, if you can talk about the way that um, the teeth will remodel because of the altered um, calcium levels in the diet and because of the altered pressures, um, the teeth grow a certain way because they need to uh, wear those uh, that um, uh, very, very abrasive grass down into small pieces. Um, and if they're not doing that and if they're eating pellets and they just sort of melt in the moisture of the mouth um, and if there's uh, altered patterns of nutrients, then they are just much, much more likely to develop those serious dental disease problems. And lots of our rabbit clients are aware of those. And if you can draw a pretty straight bow between the diet and the problem, that seems to motivate people much more um, than just saying, um, this diet's good and this diet's bad, in my experience, Brendan. Absolutely. And, te- and and stressing the importance of, one, it's going to cost them a lot of money if they don't feed the right thing, and, <laughs> and two, their animal is not going to live as long, um, almost certainly. So, yeah, um, I really stress those points if I'm still struggling. And, yes, I do get the odd client who I just throw up my hands and, and just give up um, because they come back in next <laughs> month or next six months or next year and 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 the rabbits put on another kilo mark and it's morbidly obese and they're feeding it these all sorts of treats and um yeah it's it's a sad sad situation with some of them some people shouldn't be having animals as pets should they mark <laughs> so the next big thing i'll chat to them about preventative health wise mark is desexing and my bottom line with that is is really just just do it do it now, and um, as Arnie would say, <laughs> and um, we, I recommend desex in the You've got to do it with it. You've got to. You've got to do it. With There's no point. Do it now. Do it. it. Do it now. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. Um, so whether they have one rabbit on their own, and as you mentioned last week, we do recommend having a friend or friends with rabbits, so communal animals. But we do see some clients who just keep one rabbit at home. Regardless of whether it is a male or a female, we recommend strongly that they are desexed. Is that what you do, Mark? Of course, Brendan. And and we all know um, that um, that particularly for the females, the evidence is clear that you know they uh, you'll you'll have the statistic to hand much better than me. But um, isn't it something like ninety five percent of undersexed females? have uterine adenocarcinoma by the time they're six years of age? It may be a tad less than that, Mark, but, yeah, it, it's certainly age-related, and okay. I think once they get to four or five or six, it's at least 50 or 60%, um, according to some of, the, some, of the, some of the reports. And of the youngest one, I think I've said to you previously, Mark, the youngest one I saw with uterine adenocarcinoma um, that then subsequently spread um, to the chest was just under 16 or 17 months of age, Mark. Um, so, you know, less than a year and a half. So, yeah, we strongly recommend D6 in all, all of the robots. And the males, um, 
well, they're not going to get the equivalent of the uterine endocarcinoma, are they, Mark, or the equivalent with the with the testicular um, cancers? But um, we we do think that they do live longer if we desex them, especially at an early age. And and the other reasons why we strongly recommend desexing the boys is not just because of the obvious breeding aspects, um, but also behaviour, Mark, and. Um, I, th- I think a, a reasonable number of entire males, if they are not desexed, those entire ones that get to one or one and a half years of age or, or older, they do do start to get up to a little bit of trouble and um, do things they shouldn't, like um, getting a little bit bossy with their with their human owners, um, or even perhaps starting to spray around the around the house if they're a house rabbit and and. and um, doing boy things they shouldn't be doing, so you need to remove bits um, with those ones as well. And, um, yeah. And one, to... one of the things with uh, those behaviours, which is, you know, really, really important, is first of all, like you were talking, the house rabbits that spray, once they start that behaviour in rabbits, it's um, it's almost too late to do anything that um, those behaviours get quickly locked in by the action of the sex steroids into their brain, um, and if you remove those uh, testicles and sex steroids, their behaviour doesn't always disappear. So it's a bit of a um, preemptive thing, I think, Brendan. Yes, absolutely. And thankfully, most of our clients are pretty good in just saying yes. We will um, desex our rabbit or rabbits um, without too much argument there, Mark. So yes, vaccination is the next one, and. That will vary based on what region of the world you live in, but but bottom line is we recommend routine vaccinations for whatever whatever um, diseases you need to protect from. The obvious ones there are myxomatosis, if it's available in your region, and the other one is Khaleesi virus. So locally here, Mark, our recommendations are that we don't have a legal myxomatoma myxoma vaccine here in Australia so it is the Khaleesi virus vaccine and current recommendations are um, two or three vaccinations um, for the youngsters and once they've had that initial course at the moment it's every six months Um, eventually it will will change back to 12 monthly once we get um, one of the variant vaccines out that we will end up with two different vaccines I think Mark Um, and um, then going back to every 12 12 months. But it will vary depending on the region you are in. And I think, yeah, I I think we'll just leave it at that as far as the vaccination because it it is a topic. You are, I was going to say, you are dodging controversy. (laughs) (laughs) Because here in Australia... No, I don't. I don't want you to chat about it. But I do just want to acknowledge that um, that there are some, um, while you and I are firm advocates for that protocol here in Australia, there are some uh, thoughts on other ways to do it. Um, and um, and I just thought I'd, I don't think we need to discuss it any further. Just to say that um, uh, that uh, that there are some differing opinions about um, about the vaccination here in Australia. Well, the vaccination protocol, I suppose, but the the one that we follow is the one that was recommended and developed by um, Rabbit Savvy Vets Park, and and it's for, and I think the vast majority of um, veterinarians in Australia follow that particular protocol that we follow, Mark. So, um, in my own mind, I don't think there's any particular controversy with it. But 
Yes, we could uh, could chat a little bit about that off air, Mark. Yes, Um, let's jump on to the next thing. And that was, well, it was sort of the final bit um, about that initial consultation. We spent most of this time educating the client about preventative health and aspects of feeding and looking after their rabbit. And the last bit, which which is a fairly broad subject, isn't it, Mark? It's the actual clinical examination of that animal, um, which the client may be getting a little bit toey with you by then. Mark, you've gone through all these things and you haven't even looked at the rabbit. And um, my my approach to the actual consultation and the examination of a rabbit is is two-pronged, Mark, um, and it's like what I think you also do with most of your unusual pets. It, we split it into two parts, and that's the examination from afar, which is what I call it, um, or the distant examination. So that's examining the pet and looking at the animal without grabbing it and plonking it on the consult room table and stressing out that rabbit. Um, so as I'm going through all those previous aspects and, and topics we've discussed, Mark, um, I often say to the client, look, open the little carry cage, put it on the floor and let the rabbit wander out um, into the consult room and and sort of hop around and, and de-stress to a certain extent. And while it's doing that and we're going through the diet and de-sexing and all the other aspects, I'll be out of the corner of my eye looking at that rabbit and getting a bit of a feel for if it's behaving abnormally because it's amazing because we're dealing with a prey species as, as we know um, if we just take that animal out of the carry cage and put it on the consultation table it may just do a prey species thing and just stress out and um, just sit there fast heart rate fast respiration rate and your chances of detecting an abnormality such as say a, a, a very subtle lameness is is basically zero isn't it um so yeah examine the animal from afar first is is my first comment mark um what would you like to take the next bit from there or comment on that i just think it's a um an underestimated um Part of the examination, I think it's really important to you. You, uh, in your time efficient manner, you highlighted that you would be doing that while you were talking to the client about those um, nutrition and and uh, other aspects of preventative healthcare. But I think it's really important to emphasise that you are doing that examination from afar. That you are assessing um, the way the rabbit moves. It's. Uh, um, its uh, um, gait, its uh, the angle that it holds its head at, the um, the normal sort of behaviours, the the normal breathing patterns, all those things are very very valuable to gain from a, um, a distant examination before you um, uh, do the more hands on part of the examination. And you're exactly right, Brendan. Rabbits are prey species, and they do get onto the console table and think that um, this is a threatening place and I'm just going to sit, I'm going to freeze, I'm going to do the predator is nearby thing and I'm going to freeze and try and hide from anything that might be bad by staying very still. Um, But breathing fast and heart beating fast in preparation of an explosive um, escape if that is necessary. And those behaviours do conceal those subtle and nuanced uh, things about a physical exam that might give us a clue that something is going on. So I think it's really important to do it from afar. And then once you have got them on the table, be aware that it is stressful for them, that um, 
that they are likely to freeze. Um, but if you do things that are um, that they feel are too invasive, and probably the the one that um, gets me into the most trouble is when I'm starting to have a look in the mouth. Um, if you do those sorts of things, then they are not just likely to you know pull gently away. Um, they can do some uh, quite explosive um, I'm out of here type actions um, and those explosive jumps and whatnot can uh, be, um, well, particularly dangerous if they're on the consult room table and, and you're not prepared for it. So I think being careful of the hands-on examination is the first step. And I tend to Go on, Brendan. You were going to say something. I could hear your voice. The you could hear me. You could hear me Wis thinking. Wisdom coming. <laughs> well, one of the um, related things that um, not rarely happens is the rabbit that likes to then suddenly jump on top of the shoulders or the head of the client, <laughs> Mark. And I'm sure you're chuckling away there, and I'm sure you've seen that happen several times. And I just... I just hold my breath when that happens. I'm waiting for that rabbit to then fall or jump to the ground and then I have a rabbit with a broken leg to deal with as well um, as a vaccination. It's remarkable how often it happens and, and I'm touching a number of uh, wooden uh, furniture pieces right now because um, I, I'm the same as you. I expect any second for the rabbit to tumble to the floor and break both femurs or um, some lumbar vertebra or something um, but um, but yeah it, it is amazing how that explosive um, uh, you're not poking me there mark action often ends up with the rabbit on the shoulders or head of the client um, yes yeah. and I, be ready and for I think, it is my tip yes and I think that's part of the art of of veterinary science and and getting a feel for which particular rabbits are going to explode or not um and until you've seen a lot of rabbits i think it's hard to sort of predict which ones which will do that and you'll certainly get ones that you can't predict that still do, still do that but it's just the feel of which ones you can and can't do with our examination on them and, and i think the key there is if you do have a particularly flighty animal regardless of whether it's a rabbit or not or another species um you stop um don't don't try and be a hero and, and complete your clinical examination and do your rectal temperatures on on an animal when when you're going to end up with 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 a problem there so no stop and and do it again another day or admit the animal to the clinic and sedated to do the procedures that you were hoping to do with the animal awake, Mark, and and I think that's that's a that's something you learn, don't you, as you get a bit bit older and they get you get a bit sick of of having disasters occur. Um, I think that's the main reason why I why I sort of stop and say, okay, let's you know let's just chill out. Um, do we need to actually do this particular procedure or, or right in um, either in front of the animal or with the animal awake? Um, and if not, let's not do it. Um, yeah. So as far so as the rest of thing, yeah. one other thing Sorry. about the um, physical exam on the table, I was going to say was that um, I found um, making sure that I've got a. Um, a Generally, I use a towel, but some form of grip makes a world of difference that if you place these rabbits on a very smooth, you know, a surface stainless steel or um, uh, whatever that can be easily made uh, antiseptic, but can be easily treated with antiseptic and made clean, um, I think that raises their level of anxiety. A slippery surface 
um, that they can't get a grip on and, and that they feel less likely that they're going to be able to escape from causes some trouble. But if you have a towel, um, that little bit of texture and grip and whatnot does seem to make uh, make the rabbits a little bit more comfortable and it puts you in the ideal position that if there is the need for gentle restraint, um, that the towel can be folded up and around the rabbit like, you know, we regula regularly, regularly refer to it as a bunny burrito. Um, and, uh, and if the towel's there, it just makes it that much easier to do rather than pulling it out of the drawer when the rabbit's stressed and catching it off the person's head and trying to wrap it around. Yeah, so that's my other tip. Have a, a uh, substrate that's not, uh, that's not um, slippery. Definitely, yeah, and we, we have a rubber mat we also put on straight on that stainless steel table and then we put a towel on top of that usually for the rabbits, yeah. So, so yeah, I think You've it's a great You've always got to tip. go one better. You've always <laughs> got an extra layer. <laughs> an extra layer of complication usually, Mark, unfortunately. Um, yes, so, but, we yeah, we, we both recommend you do not just put the rabbit straight on the stainless steel table. And as far as the actual systematic hands-on examination, it should be exactly that. And everybody has their own method and their own process of doing it, um, maybe starting at one end of the rabbit and going to the other uh, other end. Um, doing things like taking rectal temperatures, Mark, um, I think that's something that I, that I do not do every single patient small mammal that comes into my clinic it depends on whether that animal is unwell or not and how important it is to get that that rectal temperature if it's a supposedly well animal and the rest of the clinical examination it does appear to be well and it is in there just for a health check or a vaccination i may not be taking that rectal temperature even though in theory we're taught at university that we should have get that to get that core body temperature with them, Mark. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I'm a bit like you in that I tend to prioritise the things that are going to the things that are going to aggravate an animal. The things that are going to be most threatening um, are, you know, the, the the examination of the parts of the animal that are going to be. Um, you know, that if damaged, they're going to threaten their life. And so if you stick a thermometer um, uh, per rectum, then that's obviously very challenging for an animal. Similarly, if you stick a scope in the mouth, that most critical part of a rabbit, um, that they're absolutely fundamentally dependent on for, uh, for the rest of their life to obtain that constant train of nutrition that feeds the guard, um, they're going to be upset about that. So we tend to um, look at whichever one of those examinations is going to give us the most information. And quite often you're right, it's the, you know taking the time to gently look in the mouth um, and assess the teeth um, rather than getting a temperature is often the most useful uh, um, invasive intervention, semi-invasive intervention during the physical exam. Yes, and I leave that, I must admit, I leave examining the mouth to virtually the last aspect of my clinical exam on most rabbits that I'm looking at in that consultation mark. So I, I usually start with that distant examination um, while it's hopping around, usually on the, on the floor there or, or perhaps on the table while we're going through all the diet, etc. And then I would auscultate the chest, um, have a bit of a um, general feel of the rabbit, um, and and go from then the, the gentle palpation of the the mandibles and the maxillary region externally to 
to detect any early, um, obvious signs of t potential dental disease, for instance, examine the eyes, um, flip the rabbit over, and I do every single rabbit that I have in the consultation room, I do um, examine their perineal region, Mark, to see whether or not they have any of those caked faeces. And, and also, it's amazing how many, do you, I'm sure you have a lot of rabbits that have a, a sex change once they come into your clinic, and the rabbit that's been to the other clinic for the last six years for its vaccination and health check and it comes in as a Brendan and it goes home as a Brenda um, because the local vet didn't um, bother really checking that it is a boy or a girl or confirming it um, that was told when they purchased a rabbit from a pet shop or a breeder. So I think it's really important to confirm that sex identification of the animal, Mark. Um, and, then, and we also palpate um, the, the abdominal area and listen to the cecum and the stomach, listen for those gut sounds as well. We usually recommend for that first consultation as well that they um, consider having a f basic faecal examination done and you can usually pick up a few faecal pellets from the carry cage um, just to get a basic feel, um, especially those young some of those young rabbits, Mark, I don't know whether you, whether it's a, a local thing here, but we see a, a reasonable number of um, young rabbits that do get clinical coccidiosis, um, and that's a young scrawny rabbit um, typically, um, and you see massive numbers of coccidia. Do you see many of those? We do see a, a, a decent number of them, Brendan. Uh, um, yeah, so I think, it, I think it's something that um, pretty much up and down um, the east coast south of Queensland because they don't have rabbits up there as pets. But um, um, pretty much the whole eastern seaboard, that's a pretty common thing, I think. Um, certainly we do, just the same as you, see quite a few rabbits. Uh, just at that sort of 10, 12-week age group, um, they all uh, have um, uh, irritation. They'll have um, diarrhoea. Um, they'll often have... Um, inappropriate um, cecotroph delivery, um, and then um, we'll look at some of the the um, stools and end up with um, a decent number of coccidia. Yes, so yeah, systematic systematic examination there, Mark, and we'd obviously include the ears as well with the rabbits and their interest in a straight ear canal there, and they are quite sensitive on the ears, so you need to be fairly gentle when examining the ears and I often leave the ear examination um, to a little bit later on the as part of the hands-on examination there but everybody has their their variation on their their hands-on examination of the rabbit there marker are there any other topics or, or points we've missed with that basic um, bunny examination that first consultation that you can think of I can't think of anything I just did want to reiterate one of the things that you mentioned the uh, the um, palpation of the mandible. I often find um, it to be in, uh, uh, underutilised, um, just making sure you've got symmetry and there's no unusual lumps and bumps. Doing it regularly so you, uh, uh, you know, different rabbits will definitely have different shaped maxilla and mandible mandibular regions. Um, but um, that often is a, an excellent clue that asymmetry palpated externally will often lead you to pay more attention to intraoral structures or even consider radiography. So I, I, I um, um, always make sure I emphasise that part of It's easy too and the rabbits resent it a lot less than a lot of other things. So good tip, Brendan. Yes, we should be systematic and we get a bit slack and I must admit that... Um, 
I reckon it's a bit of Alzheimer's kicking in, Mark, and sometimes I, I get out of the consultation room. I've, I've checked over the rabbit and I think, gee, I didn't bother checking the um, mandibular and maxillary region of that rabbit. You're a bad boy, Brendan. Um, and with that, I think we've covered most of the basic bunny consult, part one and part two. And we will talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.